Thank you for being here as we continue with our study of change. <clears throat> this morning we'll be talking about chapters 4 and 5. So if you have a book with you, and hopefully you brought your book with you, Evan, it may be a little too loud for some of these folks up in the front. They're kind of grimacing. If you turn to at least have your book open to chapters 4 and 5. Be prepared for those two chapters as we begin this morning. Father, thank you so much for the work of your Spirit. What a great double work. The initiating work of saving us into your family. Of giving us the gift of eternal life for the purpose of conforming us to Christ. And then the second great gift, the gift of your Spirit to transform us, to carry us toward the goal to be conformed to Christ, to walk with us, to minister to us, to convince, to convict us, to protect us, to provide for us to do everything necessary in us as we cooperate so that we gradually, day by day, work by work, issue by issue, are being transformed. And Father, all of this takes its culmination on that great day when we stand before you as you take us into your family, into your presence before the throne and complete the work absolutely so that we have new bodies which have been transformed into the image of the risen Savior. Father, thank you for this. What a glorious work. But these days, Father, we put our hearts and our minds and our decisions toward reaching that goal by faith. As you proclaim your word, as you instruct us, as you do your work in us. And Father, as you do that, we grasp your hands and walk with you. Together in this great work. So, Father, this morning, bless our hearts. <clears throat> give us understanding. Give us reception. And give us cooperation with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, thanks to Bill Treby for speaking last week. And this morning, we continue with our study. He covered chapter 3. We'll be covering this morning chapters 4 and 5. And remember, the entire issue for us in Christ is this, that we are being conformed, transformed, changed, sanctified, having been completely forgiven, but in the issue of the living out of, the, out of these bodies which have been corrupted by sin, 
which still have in them the principle of sin, the activity of sin, the desire to sin. The Holy Spirit is using all of these issues, these struggles that we're going through for one great purpose, and that is to identify areas that we need to have changed by him so that we will call upon him and depend upon him and cooperate with him toward that change that he desires to affect in us. And in order to, uh, for us to experience effective and lasting change, one of the basic issues we need to understand is why do we sin? So let's open our books on page 61, and let me read with you the first paragraph opening chapter 4. Why do we sin? <clears throat> and Tim Chester says this, Why do you sin? In what kind of situations do you act in a wrong way or experience negative feelings? Now, when he says negative feelings, I personally don't like the word negative feelings. I like the word sinful feelings, but that's just me, maybe. What makes you depressed, angry, bitter, irritated, or frustrated? Now, let's not read this too quickly, even though we have a time constraint. Think about it. What makes me, because you see, that's the way we think. What makes me angry? What makes me frustrated? What makes me irritated? What frustrates me? You see, because the emphasis is where? Something out there is doing something toward me that is causing me to feel this way. So we're looking at something out there as the reason that I sin. When you are prone to temptation, think about your change project. Think about the project that we're each supposed to be participating in, a specific area of change. Think of the last time you remember doing or feeling it. What was going on? What set you off? What wound you up? What made you depressed? What made you angry? What made you frustrated? Is there a pattern? You see, one of the things we might ask ourselves in the midst of all this is, why is all this going on in me? I am saved. I'm forgiven. What in the world is happening? Is something wrong in me that all of a sudden I am beginning to feel things that maybe in the past didn't even bother me? It didn't bother me that I lied. It just didn't bother me that I stole or I was lusting or I was greedy or I was... So what? <clears throat> this is just how I am. I'm just a human being. But now that I've been saved, all of a sudden something is operative in me that's causing me to realize and to feel and to experience this is wrong. What's going on? What's wrong? Well, nothing is wrong. Everything is right. You see, because this is the preemptive work of the Holy Spirit beginning to bring in the backhoes and the, the big bulldozers and the jackhammers of grace to break up the soil, the sinful soil of our lives in order to break it up and to release it from our experience in order to plant his grace of holiness in us. What's wrong? Every one of us are experiencing the warfare. There is a warfare in our flesh and God's spirit in a fallen and cursed world. There is a tussling, there's a warfare. Listen to this word from the Apostle Paul to the church of Galatia. Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh, lust, anger, frustration, bitterness, whatever they are, these desires are set against the Spirit. They're in opposition. And the desires of the Spirit 
or set against or in opposition to the flesh. <clears throat> For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And when he says you want to do, you want to do in and by the Spirit for the glory of God. How many of us could say this morning, there are many things in my life that I want to be able to do in Christ for the glory of God. There are many ways I want to be, the way I want to act and think and feel for the glory of God. But I just feel a real resistance. Anybody feel resistance to doing the will of God? Anybody at all? Fifteen hands go up. Great. Thank you. There is a constant resistance and battle inside of this man's body. What is it? It is the warfare between the principle of sin and the power and the person of the Holy Spirit in me, in this fallen, corrupt, corrupt flesh. Now, I'm not going to get vi vi uh, what do you call it, violent and loud like Bill Treby did last week. I'm going to stay calm this week. So before Tim Chester tells us why we struggle, before he begins to tell us what's wrong where is this issue of sin? Before he does that, he's going to remind us of two basic truths about God because it is imperative that before we talk about the difficulties and the problems and the sin issues and what's wrong in me, it is imperative that we make sure that we are basing and building our understanding on the truth of who God is and something about God. Never try to deal with issues of sin and corruption in yourself or in anyone else until or unless you are sure that there is a foundation of God, of the gospel in place. So when you construct that this is what's wrong, this is what you're doing, this is what's happening. Before you construct that, you'll know that it will stand upon the firm foundation of God himself. So let's make sure that we always want to make sure that we present something of God first. So when the, quote, bad news comes up, as we would think it would be, that bad news can stand firmly on the good news of who God is. So he's going to tell us two truths about God. First, God is our Father who cares about our struggles. Have any of you ever thought or felt that in the midst of whatever is going on, now be honest, that God is not there and you wonder if he cares? Anybody? I have been there. You just wonder. Theologically, I know God's there. Theologically, well, the Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. Jesus said, I'm there with you always, even until the end. And we know theologically that's true. I'm not talking about theology. I'm talking about feelings. I'm talking about experience. I'm talking about my daily heart-pumping mind in touch with my experiences person. I have to occasionally when things are going in a certain way and are being tempted to say, God, hello, God, I know I'm the only one who does this. I have to remind myself, wait a minute, Carrie, God does care. And even if I don't feel it at the moment, may I say the truth? God cares about each one of his children. Individually, 
and totally passionately about each one of us. Not one more than the other, but each one totally and passionately. God cares about us all. Can you say amen? He does. Now get that rooted deep in you. And the moment the enemy gives you an opportunity to think God does not care, remember this, enemy, you are a liar, and I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I am going to declare to myself and to my heart and to my soul, God does care. You see, this is a battle. It's not a walk in the park. This is a fight and a struggle. Did you get the feeling maybe that God didn't care? Did you get some of those feelings about a week ago when you had some kind of a funny diagnosis? Did you feel that? Billy, did you? Yes. In fact, I don't know whether you're a human being. If you don't get that feeling occasionally, you're probably dead. The flesh is always going to say, God doesn't care. But the Spirit of God in me will proclaim, I do care. I do care about you. The Old Testament clearly shows it's the history of God's care about his people. Listen to this word. To Moses, all of you saw the movie, so we know what we're talking about. To Moses in the mountain when he's talking to the Lord, and the Lord tells him, Moses, this is a reason I'm sending you back. This is why I'm sending you back to my people who have been in captivity for 400 years. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. God cares. God cares. Let's turn to Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Luke chapter 8. God cares. God cares. God cares about me. Every one of us personally and passionately, completely, totally, and forever, he cares. Remember Jesus said, we're going, getting in the boat and we're going on the other side. Remember what he said? We're getting in the boat and where are we going? I hope we get to the other side. We're going to try to get to the other side. I'm thinking we'll get. He says, we are getting in the boat, and we are going to the other side. Jesus Christ has promised, I am in you, and I will take you all the way through to the safe harbor of heaven. He said, we're going to the other side. The God of glory, the creator, said, we're going to the other side. Guess what's going to happen when the God of glory, the God of creation, says you're going to the other side? Guess what's going to happen? We're going to the other side. And so in verse 22, one day he got up into the boat and says, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. So we set out on our journey in Christ. We're saved. We're setting out on the journey of Christ. Now we're sailing along. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came up on the lake, and they were filled, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. King James says, carest thou not that we perish? What were they asking? Jesus, do you care about us? We're going under. And if you've been in a struggle, and if you've experienced sin to a place that you feel, I'm going under. I'm going under. I remember years ago when Mark Gorman preached in his church. What was that, Bill? 30 years ago or so? 
and I was going through a period of struggle and I actually had this vision in my mind I'm in a boat I'm sinking and I'm never gonna make it to the other side of the lake I felt I wasn't gonna make it to the other side and some way in that sermon Holy Spirit communicated to me you're going to make it to the other side I'm going to do in you with you whatever is necessary to take you to the other side I was scared to death that I was sinking and would never get back my question was God do you care See, do you care see Jesus cared about them so much where was he he was in the boat. Now, he was physically asleep, but sometimes in the boat of our struggle, what does it seem like? It seems like Jesus is asleep, and we have to yell at him to wake him up. Now, my feeling is this. If you feel like yelling at God, Master, Master, I need your help, then yell. Bellow out. Go into a room by yourself, into the bathroom, take a towel, go out by yourself, but start yelling and screaming to God. He is not offended by that. Some of us, boom it out. Occasionally, I like to raise my voice. And sometimes you just have to raise your voice to God. Not in a wrong way, but in a desperate cry to a father who is waiting for us and calling unto us into the deep things of our lives. Call unto me, not just with the peripheral thing, but call unto me from the depths of your being. You see, God, is, God cares. Let's look at Tim Chester's comment in the middle of page 62. This is what he says in the middle of that page. God doesn't just look on our struggles from a distance. He rolled up his sleeves, came down, got involved, and experienced our struggles firsthand. He was in the boat. He was experiencing the water and the waves and the wind with his disciples. That God cares about us is most amazingly seen where? In the incarnation. If you ever have a doubt whether God cares about you, turn to the passages in your Bible that talk about the cross. There is no greater and clearer and most dramatic and compelling revelation of God's care for me and for you and for each one of us. He violently cares for us. May I say that again? He violently cares for us. Sorry, about us. He violently cares about us. So the next time you have a tweak in your spirit, in your soul, and it's going to happen. Don't feel that you're less a believer when this happens. You are a human being. We are all human beings susceptible to the same issues. So it's okay to have a thought or a twinge. God, where are you? But then it's not okay to wallow in it. When you feel that way, jump up and start fighting and screaming and saying, the cross of Christ shows me God cares about me. 
fight it. I need to move along. You know, even as I was writing this and going through this portion of the scriptures and in the book, this was last week, a week before last. I can't remember when I did it. It was Saturday night, 7 o'clock. And Gene and I were sitting in the emergency room. Ashley had gone home. It was Monday, sorry. Ashley had gone home Sunday night. And during the day, Monday, she was bent over in pain. Something was wrong. That's my daughter. And so we're over there in the emergency room, sitting and waiting, waiting. They did this, they did that. They gave her a CAT scan. You know, they did all the other stuff. It's unsettling when your child is bent over and you don't know what is going on. You have no assurance that this is going to be okay in the midst of it. And while I'm writing this, God cares about me. I'm being challenged by that filthy liar, that filthy, demonic, stinking, slimy snake. And I had to in my spirit, because if I saw yelling in the emergency room, they would strap me down. <laughs> Put me in the psych ward. I had to battle through just like you do. Listen to me. No matter what happens, in the face of not knowing what was going to happen, I had to come to this. No matter what happens, God cares about me and about my daughter. Thank you, brother. Say it again. Thank you. This is not easy, but it's real. So don't give me some glib, well, you don't understand my situation. I didn't get my raise last week, and I wonder about God's care. In the midst of the darkness of Satan's lies, bellow out. The cross shows me God's care. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And there are a bunch of negatives. I will never leave you, no ever, no ever. Second thing Tim Chester wants to show us, God cares for us. Not who cares about us, but he does something about it. Let's read the rest of the story in Luke chapter 8, verse 24. Remember, master, master, don't you care that we're perishing? We're going under Jesus. Don't you care about us? See, Jesus was in the boat caring about them so he could care for them. He was in the boat caring about them so he could care for them. His presence was there about them so he could care for them. And here's what happened. And he awoke. Ah, when the God of glory awakes and looks into the storms of our lives, let the God of glory awake. For when this great God of glory is a man wakes up, Satan and all his minions better back down and run away. He wakes up. I like that. And he rebukes the wind and the raging waves. And in Mark it says, be muzzled. Be muzzled like a roaring dog. Be muzzled. That's what he says. And everything stopped. The storm stopped. He cares for us. He cares for us. 
pages 64 to 65, you see. God's care for us to conform us to Christ. He cares for us by conforming us to Christ. And this is why we're given all those verses to be able to rejoice. Why can I rejoice in sufferings? Why can I rejoice when everything's falling apart? It's difficult to rejoice in the midst of this stuff. But rejoicing isn't a feeling necessarily. It's a decision to obey and cooperate and believe the Word of God. And as I doggedly and clenching clenching my teeth say, I will rejoice in knowing God. I will rejoice in the cross. I will rejoice when I'm a child of God. I will rejoice knowing that whatever happens, God will work this for his glory. I am deciding to trust my God in the midst of this. He will begin to change your feelings. And all of a sudden, you will feel the joy of God rising up in you as a great river of water flowing through you. But you've got to start somewhere. Let's stop wringing our hands and start ringing the bell of heaven. And then on page 65, Tim Chester tells us God's, God cares for us by promising one day you're coming home. I think for me, one of the greatest verses in the Bible is Revelation 22.4. I think it's 22.4. Five words. And they shall, they shall see his face. He'll wipe away what? Every tear. And we're going to be united with him. You see, God cares. He cares. He cares for us today by working in us in all of this toward our transformation. See, Romans 8.28 is the truth. It's the truth no matter what is happening. It's the truth no matter what you think about it. It's the truth, and no matter what the outcome is, it is the truth, period. Absolutely close the door and leave it alone, for we know that God works all things. How much? I, I can't hear. I can't hear you. All things for the good. What is the good? The goal of Christ. For those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. I know this. I know it theologically, and I am growing into an experiential knowledge of it as I remember the truth and proclaim the truth. May I move along? So having reminded us of God's care, now we turn our attention to why we struggle. The explanation is on pages 65 to 70. What's wrong? What is being revealed in our struggles? Our struggles reveal our heart. When things are going on externally to us, there is an internal activity of temptation to sin. And that internal activity of sin is God's drawing out of us the issues of our heart that need to be changed. And so where is the struggle? The struggle isn't, doesn't have to do with anything external. The struggle is on the inside of me. The struggle is within my own heart. You see, it's an internal thing exposed by external circumstances often. My behavior comes from my heart. It's what is inside of me. Bill said last week, and Chester says it this week again, 
I have a DNA in me which is called sin. Yes, I'm saved. Yes, you're saved. Yes, we're new creatures. We are constituted spiritually, reconstituted, recreated spiritually. But we still are housed in a body which is infected and overcome by sin DNA. And so the new man, the new person who lives in these corrupt bodies has a fight, a struggle to contend against the very nature of the body and the propensity and the desires of the body to contend against those in favor of God's will. And that contending is so often and usually brought about, stirred up through our struggles, through circumstances, through difficulties. How many of us this week, something has happened and something of sin in me was revealed? Anybody at all this week? Something has happened and something of sin in me was revealed. Yes. And so what do you do? That's an issue for which you say, Father, thank you for revealing the sin. Thank you, Lord. It's in you. Thank you for revealing the sin. And then begin by the Spirit, according to the Word of God, to contend against this sin, to determine what its root is, and begin to pull the root out by the grace of God. See, my circumstances, all they do are triggering the sinful activities or the DNA that's already inside of me. So on page 69, listen to what Chester says. We sin simply because we do not trust and we do not worship God. Now, I'm going to tweak that a little bit because I know what people say, sin is unbelief. May I tweak that a little bit and say this for the believer? I understand what the what it means when it says unbelief, but I don't want us to misunderstand what it means. I'm going to change it and say it this way. It's not so much a matter of unbelief when I sin. It's weak belief. It's weak belief. I don't believe any of us are actually not believing in God and not trusting God. I think at that moment, the activity of sin through the circumstance and through whatever and our desires or overcoming our desires to please God and to serve Him. So I would just call it weak belief, or I diverted belief to the wrong place. But you call it what you want. But it's a lack of or a weakness in our trusting God and in our worshiping God. You see, the way we respond to our circumstances, now think about this week or two weeks ago, whatever. The way I respond to certain circumstances, the way I respond to certain relationships, the way I respond to difficulties, all of these are just revealing what's inside of my heart, what's wrong in my heart. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew, it's out of the heart come the issues of life, the cursings and the revilings and all of those feelings of frustration and anger and resentment and gossip and all of that stuff. It's that which is already inside of me being churned up by the issues of life 
talked to someone this week. And this particular person was trying to figure out why. I'm going to say he. It's easier for me to say he, so you'll have to guess whether it's a he and she. <clears throat> why he was experiencing these things. And so I asked him, why are you frustrated? But let me just say it this way. And I get this answer a lot, especially from husbands and wives. Why are you frustrated? <laughs> you know, the way my husband talks to me frustrates me. Okay, I understand that. But why are you frustrated? Well, because when he yells at me, da, 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 I get frustrated or I get angry. I understand that. I understand you get angry and frustrated, but why are you frustrated? Well, and then all of a sudden you see the eyes of frustration starting to look at me. Like, you just like my husband. I've been telling you what's wrong and you don't get it. Why anger? Why frustration? Why bitterness? Why unforgiveness? Why? Sin in my heart is being revealed through those external circumstances. And I can't tell you how many times, and some of you may have been in some of these meetings that I've had with you. I've asked you this, asked you that, and you know, you kind of get like, man, this guy is stupid, man. He ain't getting it. Mike, I tell him and tell him. I've told him five times I'm frustrated, told him the reason, and he still asks me, why are you frustrated? And all of a sudden, the frustration comes out. Then I say, are you frustrated? And when you say the problem is sin, now I'm preaching, brother, you behave. When you say the problem is sin, all of a sudden, there's a release of the control of the flesh so that the Holy Spirit can begin to deal with the real May we release the control of our flesh over us and stop blaming the externals and start blaming me. Amen? Let's talk about chapter 5 quickly. In this chapter, chapter 5, Chess is going to tell us that the problem with our hearts is that we're believing a lie about Satan, uh, from Satan. We're believing a lie about God. The central issue is this. Remember what Jesus said in John 8:44, talking to the Pharisees, "You are of your father, the devil, and he is a liar. He is the father of." lies. And so the great contest in my heart, in my mind, in my feelings, in my emotions, in my desires, in inside of me, the great contest is this. There is a contest of conversation. There is a contest of conversation in me. And typically the conversation as I listen to my thoughts and my feelings concerning whatever the issue might be. It's a conversation which is conjuring lies. It's lies. It's lies. It's Satan's 
flaming arrows remember in Ephesians 6 and each one of these flaming arrows of lies is shot at me but the target in me is God although the flaming arrow is shot at me the target in me is God himself I'm doing this study I'm in chapter 5 it's Tuesday morning we've been in the emergency room we finally go home I don't know 11 11 30 I don't remember the time you know how men are we don't know anything all we know is we went home Jean can tell you the moment we went home well, no, 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 she probably knows what I was wearing what she was wearing all I know I was there and I went home women don't expect any more from your man Tuesday morning I'm sitting in a coffee company, minding my own business, which I'm normally doing. And Frank, who is a neuropathologist, a neuropathologist, the guy is brilliant. He speaks and lectures all over the world. This man knows something. And he starts telling us that he's convinced that this is what's wrong with Ashley. And it's a major problem. I said, well, it may not be. Believe me, it's true. He sounds just like Bill Treby. It's true. Just like Bill Treby. True. He said that. Believe me. Those of you who know Bill know this. This is my time to pick on Bill. He loves it. Look at him. He's, he loves it. Sugar bear. And so... I mean, Bill and I love one another. We've known one another all these years. <clears throat> we used to be young together. <laughs> That's a joke. And Frank is telling me, here is what I am convinced is wrong with your daughter. Now, the issue physiologically is true that if this happened, this is the very dangerous result in her question is not whether the content was correct the question is was this Satan's lie about my daughter not about the physiological issue and here I'm sitting there listening to this and I'm writing out about lies and truth and believing God in the midst of what I'm doing I'm getting attacked by the enemy and I'm upset once again, I had to, I mean, this happened just a few hours before in the emergency room. Now, once again, I have to say, I am not going to believe this for my daughter. I will believe God's goodness, whether that means he will not allow this to happen to Ashley or whether he will allow it and other things. I don't know, but I'm going, I had to combat the lie. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? See, be very careful if you want to teach. Just be careful. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, Satan's strategy is to deceive Eve into believing a lie about God. Every statement of Satan concerning us and our circumstances and what's happening and how we're being treated and how we're being misunderstood and how this isn't right and how I should have had a doubt of God, I had a word about it. These are lies about 
the goodness and the mercy and the kindness and the purposes of God himself in me and in you. Let's get it right. The target of Satan's arrows is God. What's the result? What's the result of man believing a lie? Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped the, and served the creature rather than the creator. Remember, God gave them over in the rest of that chapter. God, four times, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over to what they wanted. That God gave them over to the results of the lie, which is death. See, there's one antidote for this debilitating and deadly activity. Jesus said it in Romans 8. 31 and 32. Listen, because we normally just quote number 32, but we really need to say number 31 to make number 32 the truth. If you abide, remain, stay in, live in, cultivate, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Free of what? Free of being dominated and controlled by the lie of Satan. So that we can be conformed and transformed. See, there's a continual battle going on. And it's a battle between the truth and the lie. Does this hit, sit, sit, uh, hit home for anybody in here? Anybody experience this lie and truth battle? Anybody at all? This is what's happening. The liar, the deceiver. You see, Satan only has one weapon against a believer which can be effective Satan only has one weapon against a believer which can be effective. Satan only has one weapon against a believer that can be effective in us, and that's his lies, his deceptions. He has no other weapon against us that can be effective. That's the only one. He's got one tooth in his mouth. And when he comes snarling and trying to bite us, and he opens that mouth, that one truth, take the hammer of God's grace and knock the truth off. I mean, knock that tooth off with the truth. Come on, we don't have to take the lies. Oh, it is hard. It's difficult. It's hard as hell sometimes. But we can do it. Why? Because greater is he who lives in me than he who lives in the world. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm empowered by God. I'm not just simply, I'm just a human being. I am a man of God in you or the people of God also. And we have the Holy Spirit. We have the truth living in us. Let's stop being kicked around and let's start kicking the lie around. Let's be aggressive in this. In order to help us, Chest identifies four life-changing truths about God on pages 80 to 90. Just going to read the major headings. He says, let me help you with this. How to help us in identifying and dealing with a lie. How to do it? We must begin and stay with the issue about God. How to identify and deal with the lie. We must remain anchored in God and who He is and how He is and what He has said in His Word. Is that clear now? How do I deal with a lie? What am I going to do? Run to God and begin to recite what you already know about God. Don't run to the world. Don't wring your hands. Run to God. 
first. God is great, so we do not have to be in control. I told you about that lady who wanted to be in control of her circumstances. And man, she wanted to be in control of what was happening in her household. I said, I'll tell you what, I believe if you can do this simple thing, God will give you the control. What's that? I said, sit there without blinking for 30 seconds. I said, now you can't even control a blink. How are you going to control yourself and your family? It's God who's in control. If you think you want to be in control, just sit there in front of the mirror for 30 seconds without blinking. If you could do it, then go for a minute. But, you know, we don't have control over the little simple things in our own bodies. How many of you control how much hair is on your head? Who's wearing a wig? Oh, Linda L. Where you at, Linda? <clears throat> we don't have control over that. I'm losing control. Look at it. <laughs> God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Now take about three or four more minutes. He's glorious. We don't have to fear anybody. I tell the young guys on staff here, I've told Evan May this, don't be afraid of any man in ministry. Honor men, respect them, but don't fear anybody. Don't be afraid of being a man or woman of God and standing up and speaking the truth and contending for the truth. Don't cower under others. Why? Because we serve and stand before a great and glorious God. When we cower for others, we're saying, God, you are not glorious. We're saying that person is glorious. And I haven't seen any glorious people lately. Not in this church anyway, except in the Spirit. Number three, God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. He's good. How many of you are saved? Okay, most of the hands went up. Talk to those of you who didn't go up. We'll talk to you later. You just can't raise your hand, can you? God is what? Good. How many of you, at least if you're not, you should be totally and completely content with just the fact that God saved you? My struggle is contentment. I talked to Linda L. I mean, last week or two weeks ago when I said, asked the pastors, she almost ran over me to find out what my issue was. I almost had to tell her, a broken foot. Let me tell you, when Linda L. runs over you, she has a whole lot of pounds underneath her. And it's not because she has to go to Pete's class. It's that machine she's in. (laughs) She almost broke my foot. God is good. And the moment I believe a lie about something else, I begin to become discontented with God's goodness, and I don't believe His goodness is as good as it should be because I didn't get, I couldn't go. It wasn't the way. And I begin to believe a lie. I believe a lie. Well, how can God be good if this is going on? How can God be good? Look, if you want proof of God's goodness, look at your salvation. God owes us nothing more. And he didn't even owe us that. Number four, God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. Aren't you glad? 
Oh, for the release of not having to prove myself to anyone else. Oh, for the release and the freedom. Not that I don't care about what you think. I am hopefully, and you are hopefully learning to care more about what God thinks than man thinks. You see, as we remember and believe these truths, how are they going to cause us to change? How are they? I won't have time to unpack it, but let me encourage you to take the last few pages of Chester's chapter 5 as he opens Luke chapter 15, verses 28 to 30 concerning the older brother. This older brother's problem was more, it was more deep, I think, than the younger boy's problem. This older brother's problem was that he was believing lies about his father. He was believing lies, and Chester takes you through three particular verses to explicate that. So instructive. Please take time to read those, those couple of pages there. Please take the time. Does somebody know what page they're on? I don't remember. For what? Yeah, but what page is in Tim Chester's book? Can't hear you. Page 90. Thank you. Love these mormons. They know things. page 94, Chester concludes by reminding us to preach these truths to our hearts daily. I have here page 94. What does it mean in practice to preach these truths? What does it mean? First, we need to nurture our trust in God's greatness, our fear of God's glory, our delight in God's goodness, our longing for God's future, our rest in God's grace. We need to do this day by day through the word, prayer, and the Christian community. Second, when we're faced with temptation, we need to not only say, I should not do this, but, and I'm not going to say I need not do this. I'm going to say this, not only I should not, but I will not do this. When tempted to envy another's possession, we not only say I must not envy, but I will not envy because I have Christ. When tempted to worry, we should not say I must not worry, but I will not worry because God is in control. Whatever sin offers, God is bigger and better. To say to temptation, I must not do this, is legalism. To say I will not do it is because God is bigger and greater is good news. Father, make it so in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we take the next two chapters, 6 and 7.